Our texts this morning are two. Unfortunately, they're right next door to each other, so they'll be easy to find. If you can find the book of 1 Peter, it's kind of way in the back past Hebrews, but before Revelation, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, Peter speaks a true word here. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now back up a book to James and chapter 5 and verse 16. And actually we'll pick up in the second half of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Father, we ask this morning that you would come and speak to us in the stillness of our hearts. We pray, King Jesus, that uh, your word would go forth with power as we expect that it will, as we have come expectantly believing that you speak to your people on your day, in your house, as your word is preached. So, Master, speak, thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. Well, this will be the, the last sermon in, uh, in our Lenten series on spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness, and I, I hope it's been helpful and useful and interesting. Next week, we're going to return to our um, expositions in Ephesians, and uh, I just want to close out this series this morning by looking at the outcome of spiritual transformation if it is successful and if you are diligent and faithful at it. If you were to ask yourself, or if you were to ask me, rather, why should I embark on this journey? How will my life change if I decide to enter into the process of spiritual transformation? Now, we could legitimately answer this question with an ought, as in, you ought to do so, because according to Jesus, if you don't, there's really no evidence that you actually possess the salvation that you profess. And you're quite possibly one of those people to whom Jesus will say one day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. Or to put it another way, you might be a weed in God's wheat field from the parable of the wheat and the tares. And it's Jesus who says these things, and so they must be true. Jesus does threaten. Jesus does warn. And we're foolish if we don't pay careful attention to what he says and put his words into practice. He tells us that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Be like the one who built his house on the rock, not like the foolish one who built his house on the sand. And, who, and what's the difference between the two? The person who is wise, who builds his house on the rock, hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. Here's the words of Jesus, and he puts them into practice. But those warnings and those threatenings, as important as they are, aren't the most important thing by any stretch of the imagination for the true child of God. Instead, we are to look to the pleasures and the joys and the great blessings that come to us as we take this journey together with the Lord Jesus. Now, to help us gain clarity about just what it is that we're after in this process, there's something in theology that I'd like to introduce to you. We find it in our Bibles, and, uh, but the, the old name is the Ordo Salutis. Everybody say Ordo Salutis. Very good. If you're Italian, what do you say when you hold that wine up? Salud, right? To your health, right? To your well-being. Ordo Salutis is just the Latin way of saying the order of salvation. Now, uh, being saved is a process, 
And in this process, we aren't always aware of all of the steps that are going on, all of the things that are happening to us, because some of them God did to us by Himself without our input. Now, there is a kind of a a simplified or partial list of those things in Romans chapter 8, and uh, we've, we've kind of skated by it before on a couple of issues, but it's right after that wonderful passage in Romans 8, 28, where, God, where Paul talks about God causing all things to work together for the good. But um, in Romans chapter 8, we've got this partial list, and, and in, in this whole first, second half of the eighth chapter of Romans, Paul is talking about the glory that will be given to us one day and how wonderful and how powerful it is. And he talks about all of the earthly troubles and the earthly trials that we're undergoing and those tribulations and those pains that we're experiencing, many of which come to the Christian uh, especially and specifically because we do belong to Jesus Christ. And he says two things about our painful trials. He says, number one, that they really are momentary and that they are light afflictions and that they aren't worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. In other words, whatever you're enduring now, just wait. And in a million years, when you are a bright, shining, amazing being, you will look back on your life on earth and barely remember the things that are so painful now. It just will. They will seem to have been something that lasted for such a little time and to have been such a light thing and to have been part of the process that got you to this glorious state. So Paul is very concerned with our glory in the second half of Romans 8. And then he says in Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things, even those painful trials, to work together for the, for the well-being of those whom God has called according to His purposes. And so he's arguing that our God has this breathtakingly deep and good and mysterious and wise purpose for the people whom He calls. And then he gives this brief outline of the events that are part of our salvation. This is a brief, partial ordo salutis, order of salvation. And and the order goes like this. It talks about the foreknowledge of God, those whom He foreknew. And then it goes next to predestination, those He predestined, those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then it says, those whom He predestined, He called to Himself. And those whom He called, He then justified. And then those whom He justified, He glorified. In other words, that's heaven. That's glorification is what happens to you after you die and go to heaven. Now, as I said before, there are other parts of this order that he left out of the list for his own good reasons, things like adoption and, uh, and other things like that. One of those steps, and it's an important one for our purposes today, goes between justified and glorified, and that's the step called sanctified, sanctification. So, for our purposes today, the order of the last three would be those whom He justified, He sanctified, and those whom He sanctified, He glorified, or will glorify, actually. Paul puts it in the past tense because he wants you to know how certain it is that it's going to happen to you if you belong to Christ. Now, what I want to hone in on this morning, just very briefly, just to sort of set the stage, are those two stages, those two events, justification and sanctification. I've used these words before. I'm going to use them again. They're important words. Those two little words are actually incredibly important. Those two little words set Europe ablaze with the light of the glory of God in the 1500s. Those two little words caused the Protestant Reformation. And the recovery of the clarity and the purity of the gospel hinged 
on a right understanding of those two little words. So they are super important, and it would be good for us to know what they mean. So let's talk about what they mean. Let's start with justification. And there are five things that we can say about justification. Number one, justification is an act of God alone. It is monergistic in this. Now, that, that word monergistic is just a fancy way of saying mono, one, ergon, work. There's one person working, and it's God. It's not you in justification. Secondly, justification is a legal declaration by God as an authoritative judge. And in justification, God declares us not guilty. And he pardons us from all of our sins. That's right. You could all say amen to that because that's good news, right? You're not, if you're justified, you're not guilty. Everybody say amen. amen. Okay. You are not guilty. God pardons you from all your sins. And the way God does this is really cool. He does this by imputing, that's a Bible word, or crediting, that's also a Bible word, Christ's perfect righteousness. Christ, when he came and he lived and he died, he kept the whole law of God in every detail. There was no lack found within him, and he accumulated merit. And God takes that merit from Christ, and he imputes it, or he credits it to you. And he looks across time then, and he takes all of your demerits, your sin and the punishment that it deserves, and he credits it to Christ on the cross, and then he punishes Christ for your sins. That word imputed or credited is incredibly important. Now, now it's not, here's what it's not like. Let's just say that, that my daughter, who's now started driving, this has not happened, so don't go saying that this is just a what if. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't have any money. You know where she gets her money? First bank of dad. That's right. So, so let's just say that she got a speeding ticket, and, and she got a speeding ticket for $50 from, uh, from the Mahoning County Sheriff's Department. Now, she owes something she can't pay, and there's a penalty attached to it. Now, what happens to my daughter? Well, her dad comes in with his vast, vast resources. I'm so overpaid here that I have so much money that I can just come in and I can say, now, it, I don't give her the money so she can pay the ticket. No, no. I pay the ticket. I pay the ticket. So when the state or when the county, when Mahoning County looks at her, even though she hasn't coughed up a single living dime, they see paid on her account. Okay? And that is justification. What I did is credited to her. All right? And that's what Jesus does for us. That is justification. What he does is credited to our account before a holy God. And God, as an authoritative judge, looks upon us and says, not guilty for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, fourthly, we receive these benefits from Christ by saving faith. Believe in our hearts, we believe and are justified, says the scripture. We receive these benefits by exercising saving faith rather than, for instance, by our own efforts or rather than by the use of sacraments, as in the Roman Catholic Church. We receive them simply, we just, we just take. God says, Here they are, and we just take. That's all we do. All, all saving faith does is just lay hold of the promises of God and Jesus and bring them close to ourselves. It's, it's a very passive thing. It's not something you gin up. It's something God gives you the ability to do. You just, you just take that, okay? Now, here's the important thing. Justification does not change our nature. It doesn't change our nature. It only changes our position before a holy God. We are guilty 
And God looks upon us for the sake of Christ and declares us not guilty, but, and he refuses then to punish us for our sin. He punishes Christ for our sin, but we haven't changed inside one little bit. And that's super important. So when we are justified, which happens when we are born again, the only righteousness we have is the righteousness of Christ, which is credited to our account. And the only holiness we have is what we might call positional holiness. In other words, we ourselves have no righteousness or no holiness within us. Yet. Yet. And that's what sanctification is for. Because God says it's wonderful that you are a pardoned, forgiven mess. But let's not leave you a mess. Let's change you from the inside and turn you into something different. That process is sanctification. You see, the same grace that justifies us doesn't stop there. It inexorably leads to sanctification. Isn't that what Philippians uh, chapter uh, 1 says? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And how are you able to do that? Because it's God who's at work within you, enabling you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So that grace that justifies you doesn't stop there. Keeps going. And it starts to change now. Now what can we say about sanctification? What can we say about sanctification? Well, we can say a few things about sanctification. We can say, first of all, it is a work of God's free grace that renews you in your whole being. It renews, it's not just content to have a new heart. It also wants you to have a new mind. Also wants you to have a body eventually that's made new. That's what the resurrection is all about. That's the final key bit is that resurrection body. It wants you to have new life within your family and your friendships, and new order of life within the life of the church, where you're brothers and sisters of one another. It renews every part of you eventually. And it is not monergistic. Now, you remember what monergistic means? Mono, one, ergon, work, one working, God working? No, it is not. Instead, sanctification is synergistic. Sin means with Ergon means work. You and God are working with each other. That's what Philippians says. Work out your salvation. How are you going to do that? God's at work within you. Synergistic, okay? So you and God must work together cooperatively, but behind your work is God's grace working in your life. Second thing we can say about sanctification. Sanctification is progress. I like the amen corner over there. Thank you. Just keep going. You'll, you'll wake the rest of us up sooner or later. Sanctification is progressive. It is progressive. It enables you to die more and more to sin and to live more and more to righteousness. And Paul actually talks a little bit about sanctification. He sneaks in the subject of sanctification in Romans 8 when he mentions predestination. Because he doesn't say they're predestined to get to heaven. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to get to heaven, although that's true too. What he says is those whom he foreknew, he predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, you're predestined to be like Jesus. He isn't concerned to speak about the predestination unto life that he talks about in Romans 9 or Ephesians 1. Rather, he talks about God's purpose in predestining us so that we may be like Jesus. Number five, sanctification infuses grace into us. Now, I talked about justification, I talked about imputation. That's just crediting, right? That doesn't change you. But infusion does. You know, you, you get these little things. I, I, I like tea. And uh, I like, I, I, uh, I, well, this is a terrible time to admit it in the history of the world. But one of my favorite teas I have to order directly from Moscow. It's this stuff called Krasnodar tea. And it's made in uh, where the Sochi Olympics are. It's, it's the farthest north tea plantation in the world. And it's this amazing special kind of tea. And you can put it in a cup and let it steep. And it never, ever gets bitter. 
right? It's just beautiful. It's wonderful stuff. And you can't get it here. You can get it in Europe, but you can't get it here. So I just buy it on eBay for, directly from Russia. Some guy in Moscow just sends me tea when I give him money. It works out pretty well until about a month ago. And uh, then, so, so I got to shepherd my tea. But, but this tea doesn't generally come in bags, right? It's loose leaf. And so you know what they call that doohickey that you put the tea in to make a pot of tea? It's a what? An infuser, right. You put the tea in the infuser, you put the ball in the water, and it puts tea in the water. It makes the water into tea. It changes the water into something else. Well, when Jesus comes with the grace of sanctification, he infuses grace into you, and you change. You change. But you don't change unless you cooperate with him, unless you pursue it diligently in the way that he's talked about. Okay, so sanctification infuses grace in us, and it enables us to exercise God's graces and to become increasingly righteous and holy in our own person. Now, there will never be a time where you can stand before God and go, all right, I'm holy now, God. You've got to take me on my own merits. No, 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 no. But there is a time where it ought to come where you can say, God, by your grace, there's something going on in here, and I'm holy, and I'm more righteous than I've ever been in my life, and I've changed. What I think about has changed. What I desire has changed. What I feel has changed. The way I treat my wife has changed. The way I talk to my children has changed. It's all changed. And Jesus, that's because of you. Now, the Westminster Larger Catechism deals with this with an admirable detail and clarity in question 77, and I'm just going to read it to you, because it talks about the difference between justification and sanctification. Question 77, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Listen to this. Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, in other words, you got to have both. If you don't have the one you can see, sanctification, then you don't have the one you can't see, justification, okay? Yet they differ in that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enables the exercise thereof. In justification, sin is pardoned. In sanctification, it is subdued. The one does equally free, justification rather, does equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God, and that perfectly in this life. So in other words, when you're justified, there's no degrees of justification. You, and, and it's not like I'm more justified than you are. No, no, we're all justified to the maximum amount exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. We all go, and it frees us perfectly in this life from the revenging wrath of God for our sins, that they may never ever fall into condemnation. In sanctification, it's neither equal in all. So, in other words, some people are more sanctified than others. Nor in this life is it perfect in any, but it's growing up towards. Perfection. Now, I think that is an enormously helpful little statement on these things. And if you just want to, it's the larger catechism, not the shorter catechism, but it's, it's all the questions around, uh, oops, I just threw it on the ground. It's all the questions around question 77 on justification and sanctification. So, so here's what we're going to do to sum it up. Justification gets you into heaven. Sanctification gets heaven into you. Okay. That's easy to say, okay? Justification gets you into heaven. Sanctification gets heaven into you. Now, all this stuff that we've been talking about for the last, what, six, eight weeks? Death to self, the battle of the mind, praying without ceasing, meditating on the word of God, putting to death those egotistical passions that rise up within us and working with God to plant in their place love and joy and peace and faith, and hope. All of that is sanctification. That's all about sanctification right there. It's about the grace of God meeting us powerfully as we faithfully and diligently go about putting the things that he's commanded in the word of God into practice in our own lives.
Now, here's the question. What happens when sanctification, which will never be entire or complete in this life, nevertheless becomes the predominant influence in your inner person? Well, let's think about this for a minute. Number one, your life becomes a life of easy, routine obedience to God. Doing what God wants you to do will seem like the obviously sane, obviously right thing to do, and you'll just do it without any struggle because your inner world has been reformed into Christ's image and His likeness. You will just, obeying God won't be hard because it will just make sense. You'll look at the world and go, why would I ever, for instance, think that pornography, why did I ever think that pornography was attractive? You'll just look at that and you'll go, I don't want that. That's, that's terrible. It's destructive to everybody involved in it. It kills souls. Why would I want to participate in that? I don't want that. Or you'll think about your flashes of temper that you have with people that you're irritated with all the time at work and you'll be like, it never helped. It just, it never helped. It made things worse, as a matter of fact. So why in the world would I ever treat them with anything but kindness and respect? If anything's going to help that nerd, it's going to be kindness and respect. You just, you just will. It'll just be the thing that makes sense to do. Number two, you will experience the deep and profound peace of Christ as you learn by experience that God is there, he's real, he can be trusted to take care of you. And so all the stress and the anxiety and the fear will just melt away because they don't make sense either. And if some emergency does arise, you find yourself being calm and deeply centered in prayer for whatever is required and you're interacting with the Lord, and you're doing what, what the most effective thing for the remediating the situation is, which is taking it to God and saying, God, please, we need your power here right now. We need you to show up and fix this, God. And I trust you, Lord. I trust you with the outcomes here. A great deal of the peace that you experience will come from just ceasing to try and control outcomes. You'll do whatever it is within your hands to do, and you'll do your best at it, and then you'll just say, all right, I've done everything I can do. I I leave the outcomes with you because I trust you, and I can't control those things anyway, so sitting around chewing on my fingernails and stressing about it really doesn't help anybody. Jesus said it, I think, funny. He said, which of you, by worrying, can add a single cubit? And there's a question in the Greek as to whether he's talking about your height or the length of your life. I tend to think he's talking about the length of your life. Which of you by stressing is going to make your life longer? And the answer is none of you. You're actually probably going to make your life shorter. And so he says, just let today's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Don't, Don't worry about it. Just trust me. Walk with me. Roll your burdens onto my broad shoulders, and I will bear them for you, says Jesus. Thirdly, Your life will also become one of deep, settled joy. And your joy will not be dependent on circumstances. Your joy will even be present in sorrowful and painful circumstances. And that's because your joy is deeper than your sorrow can ever touch. And so you learn from experience what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10 when he says that he and his traveling companions are sorrowful yet always rejoicing, always filled with joy, even in the midst of sorrow. Why? Because the sorrow, as real as it is, only goes so deep. And underneath are the everlasting arms of Jesus, and that's who's holding your joy. And the sorrow just can't get down that deep to wreck that. Thirdly, or fourthly rather, you will become a person who understands deeply what true love is. And this is something that the world is desperately confused about right now. You will be a person who is possessed by love. You won't have to try hard to act loving with people that you really don't love. You will just love them. And 
Love and the deeds of love will simply flow from your inner person naturally. Once again, it will make sense and you will find yourself able to do it because instead of pride and, and vainglory and lust and greed and all these other things that are rising up within, so you've, you've weeded that garden and you've planted love there and love grows and love comes out. Fifthly, you will be confident about the future under God. You won't worry about money. You won't worry about the awful things your body might do to you someday. You won't worry about who will take care of you. You know that so long as you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness as the primary aim of your life, you don't need to concern yourself at all with any of those other matters because your father knows that you need them. And so solutions will just arise when they're needed and strength will be supplied for the journey. You just won't need to worry about it. You, 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 there's a wonderful story of Corey Ten Boom. She, she talks about a childhood experience she had and she, she says, this is how I learned to follow God. And she was supposed to take a, a, a big trip somewhere on a train and her father went down and, and, and bought the ticket and she's worried. She's like, Papa, did you buy the ticket? Yes, Corey, I bought the ticket. Can I have the ticket now, Papa? No, Corey, you don't need the ticket. Please, Papa, can I just see the ticket? Corey, why are you so worried about the ticket? I'm your father. I promise you I'll take care of you. We'll get you to the train on time. And when you need the ticket, you'll have the ticket. And then the day came. And he took her down to the train station. And he handed her the ticket. And the day you take the journey, the ticket will be supplied, she says. And that's what will happen to you. You'll just be like, I don't need to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow because tomorrow Jesus will provide me with whatever I need. And I don't need to have it in advance. I don't need to know about it in advance. I just get the ticket on the day I take the journey because my heavenly Father is watching out for me. Sixthly, you will not be afraid of death any longer, nor will you be afraid of the dying process. The scriptures say that God very carefully supervises the death of his precious ones. And Jesus himself says that if anyone keeps his word, he will never see death. He won't experience it. His body will die, but whatever part of us it is that experiences pain and fear and anxiety as suffering is just shielded. So if you want to actually see what Jesus says, go and study John 8, verses 48 through 59, and read it carefully and see if I'm right. Because in that passage, Jesus says all that, and, and the Pharisees clearly understand what he's saying, and they, they basically reframe his words like this. They say, so you're saying, Jesus, if anyone keeps your words, he will never taste death. And Jesus says, yeah-huh. That's basically what he said, yeah-huh. It's right there in the Bible. It's in the Greek. Yeah-huh. And he does, in other words, he doesn't correct them as though they had misunderstood him. He essentially says, yes, that's right. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying that because of who I am. You will not taste death. You won't experience it. Your body will. You won't. So you don't need to worry about it. And, and if, you, if you really read your New Testament carefully, you'll see that once people have come to Jesus um, they, uh, Jesus' command to them is, just don't worry about when you're going to die. You, you live, you die, either way, it's okay. It's all good. And, and they believed it, and they lived like that, to the point where Paul could say, you know, I'd really rather punch out of here. I'm, I'm under arrest. They're liable to throw me to the lions. I'd really rather punch out of here, but I think <laughs> you guys are so weak that I think I need to hang around a little bit longer to make sure that you're taken care of, and then, and then I think God will let me go. He didn't care one way or the other. He was fine with it. And you will be too. You won't be afraid of death. It will be a small thing to die. And the moment of your death will be one of great rejoicing. And you can be confident that God will care for your loved ones that you leave behind as well. Seventhly, you won't be driven anymore by unfulfilled desires. 
Jesus put it this way. When he, when he talks to the woman at the well in Samaria, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's, a, there's an acronym that's popular in our culture today, FOMO, FOMO, fear of missing out, FOMO. And, and it, it, it haunts people. What am I missing out on that could be the thing that makes my life better? You know, it's, I, study, um, I study economics and monetary theory because I'm weird, but I'm also because I'm actually convinced that that's where Satan operates uh, a lot of his power in this world, and so I wanted to understand it. And one of the things you start to understand when you study this is market psychology. And, and, uh, and I remember as a child, my grandfather telling me stories about the Great Depression where people would go, right before the stock market crash, people would go get their shoes shined, and the shoe shine boy would have a hot stock tip for him. And he said, that's the sure sign that everything's getting ready to come crumbling down. And I remember about a year and a half ago, I was sitting at a basketball game at Heartland, and I was sitting next to two guys who were excitedly talking back and forth about how much money they'd made that week in crypto. And, I, and they were, you know, trying to get other people, you should invest in Bitcoin and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, yep, that's the shoeshine boy. This, thing's, this sucker's getting ready to come down. And, and uh, I was right. It's off about, oh, somewhere around 40% from where it was. But, but, but people are, jump into that stuff because of FOMO, fear of missing out. They, they throw their money and their energy and their time at whatever pops up, at whatever their peers are doing that seems cool or fulfilling or exciting. But for the person whose inner life has been transformed, there is no mo-fomo. There's nothing. As a matter of fact, you start to reject FOMO because it distracts you from the pleasures of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. Eighth thing. Those springs of living water that Jesus says will well up inside of you, that sense of never feeling empty or unfulfilled or restless, it doesn't just stay inside of you. It overflows out of your heart like a river, says Jesus. It's a river of strength, a river of joy, a river of life that's because the Holy Spirit is inside of you in such abundance that it's something that other people can taste and experience. This is your most powerful tool for witnessing and evangelism for Christ, Christian, because when they get to know you, they find that the Holy Spirit flows from inside of you in ways that they can actually see and feel. You will go and you will be with anxious people and they will calm down and they will say, I don't know why, but whenever you're around, I feel calm. You will go to angry people and angry people will be at peace. You'll go to frighten people and they'll say, you know, in your presence, I'm not frightened anymore. I feel safe. You'll go to hopeless people and they will feel hope in your presence because as Jesus says in John 7, 37 through 39, the Holy Spirit flows out of you. And whether the world realizes it or not, they thirst for those blessings of the Holy Spirit. They thirst for that life. Now they won't come to Jesus and get it. They'd rather die of thirst but they thirst for that life. Now, as wonderful as all of that is, and, and I mean, who would not want a life like that, like the one that we've just been talking about? As wonderful as it is, though, there is more. Let me let you in on a little secret. God wants to give you as much power and authority in this life as he possibly can. But the prerequisite for receiving it and wielding it is a character that is substantially formed by Christ and submitted to Christ. In other words, you've got to achieve a certain level of sanctification in order to receive power from God because until you do, you're not ready for it for a number of reasons. And to pray in the kingdom by the kingdom power is fundamentally to become a conduit for God's power. His power will come down into you and then out to other people. And His divine power flows through you and into the world in order to affect things in this world, often in very dramatic, visible, and concrete ways. Of course, God has a veto. 
He won't allow his power to be used to accomplish things he doesn't want done, but he gives us a great deal of discretion and control whenever he can. And why is that? Because God is training you. God is training you for your future, your future job. And your future job, your role that you will step into as soon as he is ready for you to step into it is to train us to reign with Christ. That's what all that new heavens and new earth, that wonderful song, Is He Worthy? There's a, creation's broken. New one's coming. Guess who gets to run it? You. You do. You get to run it. L- listen, to, listen to Dallas Willard on this. Prayer trains us to reign. Prayer as kingdom praying is an arrangement explicitly instituted by God in order that we as individuals may count. Don't you want to count? Don't you want to count? You want it to matter that you were here and that you exist. Well, that's what God wants this prayer for. He wants you to learn how to pray so that what you do may count and count for much as we learn step by step how to govern, how to reign with him in his kingdom. To enter and to learn this reign is what gives the individual life its intended significance. This high calling also explains why prayer frequently requires much effort, continuous effort, and on some matters, possibly years and years of effort. Prayer is, above all, a means of forming our character. It combines freedom and power with service and love. What God gets out of our lives, and indeed what we get out of our lives, is simply the person we become. It is God's intention that we should grow into the kind of person that he could empower to do what we want to do. Think about that for a minute. God wants you to grow into the kind of person that he can empower to do whatever you want to do. And then we're ready to reign with him forever and ever. Revelation 22, 5. Rain is no doubt wording that uh, is no doubt wording that is a little too grand for the contemporary mind, though what it refers to is what everyone actually pursues in life. We have been trained to think of reigning as exclusionary of others, but in the heart of the divine conspiracy, it just means to be free and powerful in the creation and governance of what is good. In the life of prayer we are training for, we reign in harmonious union with the infinite power of God. So let's look at James chapter 5 for a minute. And let's take the verses there slightly out of order. James mentions a man named Elijah. Now if you don't know your Bibles, you can find the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and 18, and he says Elijah was a prophet of God. Now, no doubt there are many things about Elijah and about his experience of God that as a prophet were unique to him and his office and his time because he was a prophet, right? And we're not. So in other words, some of the stuff that Elijah did, we ought not to expect to be able to do because Elijah is a prophet and we aren't prophets. But I want you to notice something. What James discusses concerning Elijah He does not anchor it in what was special about Elijah. He doesn't say Elijah was able to do X because he was a prophet, but you shouldn't be able to do X because you aren't prophets. No, he specifically anchors what he's getting ready to talk about concerning Elijah in Elijah's human nature, which is, as he says, just like our human nature. He explicitly says that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Now, don't miss what James is saying here. What he's saying is this miraculous event that Elijah did was not because he was a prophet. It's to be considered a part of the abilities of a normal human being who is in a certain spiritual condition before Almighty God. And this power, therefore, is theoretically available to every Christian if they will acquire or arrive at that spiritual condition that was common with Elijah. And what did Elijah do according to this text? Well, he prayed, and he prayed that it would not rain. For three and a half years, not a drop of rain fell from the sky. 
Now, when you go back to the story in 1 Kings 17, you see very clearly that the Lord did not come to Elijah and say, Elijah, I want you to go to King Ahab and tell him that I'm going to dry up the rain for the next several years. No, he did not do that. This was Elijah's idea as he and God wrestled together in prayer. And Elijah said, God, your people are worshiping Baal. And they're worshiping Baal because he's the storm god. They think Baal brings the rain. God, I want you to stop the rains for a long time. God, I want you to dry this place up. I want you to put the people in such a desperate condition that they are at the end of their rope. Let them wear themselves out chasing Baal, crying out for rain. And when they are ready to see the truth, then let's bring the rain back to the land. And God said, that's a wonderful idea, Elijah. Make it so. Go tell King Ahab what's about to happen. And so in 1 Kings 17.1, Elijah goes to King Ahab and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word, says Elijah. And there wasn't. And it got bad. And then there's a period of time, three and a half years, and, and then in 1 Kings 18, God says to Elijah, okay, Elijah, everyone's had about all they can stand now. Go and show yourself to Ahab, and let's bring the people back to the right and bring them back to repentance, and I will send the rain again. But the Lord did not send the rain until Elijah went and told Ahab what was going to happen. So the rain came back at Elijah's word, just like he'd promised. And what was Elijah, who was a man? Why was Elijah, who was a man with a sinful nature like ours, why was he able to do this? James tells us in 5.16, in the second half of the verse, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In other words, Elijah was a righteous man. Not with the imputed righteousness of Christ, though he certainly had to possess that, but with the righteousness that resulted from the infusion of those graces that the Westminster Larger Catechism mentions. In other words, Elijah had achieved, with the strong help of God working in him, a degree of sanctification that allowed God to entrust him with a large amount of power. And that can happen to you. Because in this regard, says James, Elijah is just like you. No difference. The only difference between you and Elijah is the level of sanctification. And that, friends, is something that you can and must do something about. Study the text for yourself. See if what I'm saying is true. Now, let's wrap this up by bringing it back around to where we began, to that ordo salutis again. The evangelical church in the late 20th and 21st century has really pulled a fast one, unfortunately. They don't even realize they've done it. Satan is so good at manipulating, and we don't even know we've been manipulated. But we have reduced the gospel to justification by faith alone, and the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. So that's all you need to know. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved because of his death on the cross. That's it. That's all you need to know. And then they've managed even to bollocks that up and make it less clear by using language that the Bible never uses, like asking Jesus into my heart and all these kind of things. It's unscriptural. It's unclear. It doesn't tell you what's going on or what's happened or why. Now, the, and in this scheme, then, the existence of sanctification and the necessity of sanctification and how to grow in sanctification is never discussed. Most pastors seem to be utterly unaware of it. And so Christians then, because they don't know there's like a part B, they aren't very holy. They aren't very transformed. Indwelling sin still predominates. And then these unsanctified Christians pray 
and nothing happens. Why does nothing happen? Well, Psalm 66, which was our call to worship, tells us, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, you would not have heard my prayer. Well, unsanctified Christians pray, and they don't, nothing happens because they have regard for iniquity in their hearts. They cherish it, and Psalm 66, 18 tells us that God ignores those prayers, and so they conclude, well, prayer doesn't work, and so they quit. And so God does very little among them for the most part. And so the individual Christian doesn't know what to do. He's lost. She's lost. They behave just like the world because they aren't much different than the world because justification doesn't change you. Sanctification changes you. Amen. And the church is cold and it's dead and it's powerless and Satan laughs with glee because he's winning. Loved ones, it doesn't have to be this way. Are you really that happy with your life, your Christian life, as it exists right now? Are you dwelling in love and joy and peace and patience, free from anxiety and fear, full of power? Are your prayers regularly calling down fire from heaven as Elijah's did? Is that, if that's happening to you, please come tell me. I will bow at your feet and apologize. I will. It's not happening to me. Not yet. Repent. Repent. That just means change your mind. Rethink your thinking. Repent, please. Leave aside lies. Leave aside petty grievances. Just put a snuffer on your pride and your need to control things that aren't yours to control. Start hacking away at those egotistical passions at the root, your unrighteous anger, your laziness, your deceit and duplicity, the image projecting that is so much of trying to win the approval of people, the gossiping, the backbiting, the whining and the complaining and whatever else bedevils and bewitches you. Just lay it all down. Just pursue holiness from the inside out and you will grow in possession of unimaginable power. God's like, here, just lay all this stuff down that's making you miserable. Let's just, let's go after it and deal with it. Let's get the roundup out of the shed and start squirting it on there and it'll take a while to die, but we'll kill it. And then in, in its place, I will give you tremendous peace and power. How's that for a bargain? And, and we're like, I don't know, maybe. I'm kind of busy this week. No, you don't have anything better to do with your life than this, and neither do I. Just lay it down. Just lay it down and pursue Jesus. Step into that easy yoke with him. Bear that light burden with him. You will get rest for your soul, and you can change, and you'll be beautiful. Amen and amen. Father, if anything I've said this morning is untrue, unhelpful, cause it to be forgotten. If anything I've said this morning is helpful, is true, is good, even if it stings, let that sting be the sting of uh, rubbing alcohol on a skinned knee where you're taking care of the infection before it sets in. Let that be a good sting, a wholesome sting, a healthy sting. Father, come, rescue us from ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.